You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. As we've seen, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes has seen a lot of things. He says that he's seen everything under the sun. He's seen great riches and great poverty. He's seen great success and great failure. He's seen leadership done well and leadership that was oppressive. He's seen every single thing that happens under the sun, and he saw all of that for us so that he could see all of these things and come back and give a report. Come back and tell people what one person couldn't possibly experience on their own. And time and time throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we've seen him summarize these things, teach us and lead us and guide us through some of these things. And now he comes to the end of his teaching. As we approach Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we come to the final words of the teacher who is trying to give us an all-encompassing picture of what it means to be human. And like we've talked about before, especially when it comes to Scripture, last words matter. And so surely, the teacher who has chosen his words so carefully for every part of this sermon would choose his parting statements well. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. To summarize all that he's seen, he says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. As he prepares to send the listeners and the readers on their way, he says, above all, in summary of all of this, you need to remember your creator. But he doesn't just tell us this in very general terms, does he? If we continue on for the next eight verses, the writer and teacher in Ecclesiastes tells us why we need to remember our creator. Because he says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light And the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors of the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and the one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond trees blossom. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. 
teacher here says you need to remember God when you're young. Because days are coming when you won't be anymore. As the teacher is seen through his exploration of what life is, the further and further you get into this thing called life, the more and more disappointments increase, the more and more it all begins to look meaningless and like vanities. And then by the end of it, the dust returns to the dust where it belongs. And so he says it's really important to remember your creator, especially in those times, because those are the times when it's easiest to forget. When life becomes oppressive and overwhelming. When health turns into sickness. When light turns into darkness. When confidence of our youth begins to turn into doubt and fear. Those are the times when it's most important to remember our Creator because those are the times when it's easiest to forget. Because fear has an interesting way of doing that to us. It helps us to take our mind and our eyes off the things that matter and place them in all kinds of places that really don't. Especially when it's something as serious as fearing for our lives or fearing for our health or fearing for our understanding of the way that life was meant to be. And this is something that as the teacher is proclaiming these truths, these words would have echoed really well in the minds and in the ears of the listeners that were gathered around because this is something that God's people knew very well. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the narrative of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3, when we see sin enter God's good and perfect world, it happens because ultimately they forget about their Creator. They begin to look to an answer that they didn't need and forget the one who had it. But it doesn't stop there because if we fast forward just a little while, after God's people had been in slavery to Egypt for over 400 years, which is just an unimaginable amount of time to me, finally God redeems them and breaks them out of that captivity and he starts leading them toward a promised land that he had just for them that he was going to deliver into their hands and it was going to be better than anything they could ever imagine. But in a small window of time, as Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to hear from God, the people look around and think, man, God's been really quiet lately. And they began to fear because they were in the wilderness. They began to look around not knowing how they were going to get out. And so because they had forgotten about God, because he seemed to be so silent, they started looking to another option and they made for themselves their own God that they thought could answer their questions more immediately and began to worship him. We can go on to another time when God's people were scattered for about 400 years. As they were exiled and taken out of that promised land that God had given them. And we think about a story like at the beginning of the book of Daniel that we're usually looking at as a very triumphant story, right? The king, Nebuchadnezzar, builds a statue for himself. And he wants all of the people to bow down and worship him. And we focus, because the biblical narrative does focus here, we focus on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That when the noise played and they were supposed to bend the knee, they stood strong and worshiped their God and not the idol before them. But we need to remember that they were not the only three Israelite men living in Babylon. There were a lot of people there 
that claimed to be the people of God, that at one point in time in their lives were worshipers of God, but now the threat of Babylon was breathing down their neck. And when that music played and they saw the statue, whether they believed Nebuchadnezzar to be God or not, they were so afraid that they forgot who the real God was and they bowed their knee to an idol. Fear is a powerful thing. message of Ecclesiastes, as it stands, is life as it is can be good. It can be beautiful. At times it can be wonderful, especially if you live life the way that God has designed it. Not seeking for yourself great riches or fame and toiling your life away for things that are going to pass away, but living a simple life, a humble life, surrounded by people that you love, investing in that life and raising your gardens and enjoying every moment that you can. Life can be absolutely beautiful, but it will end. And that's a scary proposition. In the aftermath of Good Friday, there was a lot of fear. We see it beginning even before Jesus breathed his last. As Christ was put on trial, John weaves that story in with another trial that was taking place. As people came up to Peter and they said, hey, don't you know Jesus? And he was so afraid that they were going to imprison him as well. He says, nope, never met him. I don't follow him. Quit asking me that question. Motivated by fear, Peter forgets his creator and his friend. But the fear doesn't stop there. Because as Jesus goes to the cross, we notice a much different picture around the cross than we did at the triumphal entry. With exception of two women and the apostle John, all of the other disciples, all the other followers of Jesus, not just the 12, but all of the crowds that had followed after Christ and walked with him into Jerusalem had scattered away because they were afraid. On one hand, it was sure because they thought they could be fugitives. At this point, because of the crimes and charges brought up against Jesus as being this blasphemer and this insurrectionist, There could be heavy consequences, not only religiously, but also governmentally speaking for these people that followed Jesus. And so they were scared because of that. But also they were scared because they were wrong. They had given their life to follow Jesus. Peter had made a very scary claim about Jesus if it weren't true. He said that Jesus was the son of God. And to speak that and now to see that it doesn't look like that was actually true at all, Peter was afraid because he was wrong. All of these people came into Jerusalem thinking they were on their way to a coronation. And on Palm Sunday, when the people walked into the city, that's what it felt like. Sure, it was kind of weird that Jesus chose a donkey to ride in on, but maybe they remembered the prophecies in the back of their mind and think, okay, he's making a statement here. He's claiming not just the throne, but he is claiming the role and the position and the office of the Messiah. 
And so that's why they followed him into Jerusalem. That's why the crowds lie in the streets crying out, Hosanna, God, save us, because they believed that Jesus was walking into Jerusalem to take the throne away from the religious oppression that was going on, to take the throne away from Rome and all of its imperialism and to put it back in the hands of God and that Jesus was going to sit on that throne forever. And so there was a lot of boldness on Palm Sunday. But as the week continued on, the bottom fell out and everything seemed to be failing. And all of a sudden, it looked like Jesus wasn't exactly who he said he was. And they were afraid. But then came Sunday. But ironically enough, Sunday begins with more fear. Because on that morning that we now call our Easter Sunday. It says, Now after the Sabbath, on that first day of the week, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. When we fast forward to Sunday morning, we do see more fear. But this time, it's not the fear of the disciples who were running and hiding and denying Christ. This time, it was the fear of trained soldiers. Men who had been trained by the most powerful empire the world had ever seen at that moment. Men who were trained not to show fear, but to go headfirst into battle. And they thought they had an easy day. All they were doing was guarding the tomb of a dead man. And then the ground shakes and the stone moves. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord descends and they see the Shekinah glory of God all around. And they are overwhelmed because they had never seen power like this before. And they were so afraid that they fell on the ground like dead men. But remember, there's, there's two women here as well. And I can't imagine what they must have been thinking. Because while this does look like bravery, these are women that just loved Jesus. And so it's entirely possible because of what they were going to do. They were going to anoint his body. They weren't going looking for an empty tomb. So chances are these women were dealing with the same fear, the same confusion, and the same sense of loss spiritually that all the other disciples were. But because this was their friend, whether he was right or wrong, because this was their son, whether they were right or wrong, they were going to go take care of their dead friend, of their dead son. They were doing this out of love. And then they arrive and they see the power of of resurrection on display. And then the angel speaks. I usually, in the past, have talked about Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 as the first Christian sermon, the first proclamation of the full gospel, but I think I'm wrong because I think it happens here in Matthew 28. 
Because this angel looks at the women and all of their confusion and all of the chaos and all of this overwhelming stuff that's going on right here as these grown men soldiers fall on the ground out of fear in full shocked panic, the angel of the Lord looks at the women and he utters the first words of gospel proclamation after the resurrection. And what does he say? Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know you came here looking for Jesus. I know you were expecting to find him dead and buried. But he is not here. He is risen. He says, you want proof? Come inside. Come look where he lays. Because there's no reason to be afraid. There's no dead body here. There's no sorrow here. There's no mourning here. There's no loss here. Christ has been raised. And so because of that, do not be afraid. The world around us is full of fears. It's a scary place to live. The writer of Ecclesiastes talks about some of those things just by nature. He says that there are, where's the words here? Terrors. They are also afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. This world is filled with so many ways to die. Just tons of them. So many. And everywhere we go, there's constant reminders of those things. Just the natural world around us can be scary places to live. Friday night, during our prayer time, a tiny head emerged from below the table. And for a brief moment, I thought it was a snake. And I thought, this is going to be really weird if someone comes to the table and is bitten by a snake and dies. And then we just have to hope and pray that the snake handlers are right because it's going to have to get real Pentecostal in here for a minute if someone is bit at the communion table. But then I pushed the curtain a little bit and it was just a little skink and he ran away. He's probably still in here now. I have really no idea. He ran away and I knew he wasn't a snake, so we were good. But even coming to the table could have been dangerous. And so there are fears all around us. But if that's not enough, if the natural world doesn't have enough fears, the world around us is really good at creating them. And when I say world, I mean that the way Scripture means it. The principalities and the entities around us are really good at creating more things to be afraid of. Everywhere we go, the message is, hey, you need to be afraid. But good news, we can take care of you. All of the other ideologies, religions, principalities, politics, they're there to keep us afraid so they can give us a solution. But the message of the resurrection is there is nothing to fear. The looming fears of Ecclesiastes 12 are all silenced in one moment is the women come to the tomb and it's empty. The gospel message speaks over Ecclesiastes 12. It says, because Christ has been raised, darkness will no longer have the last word over life. Because Christ has been raised, evil days are now numbered. Because Christ has been raised, the mourners who sing these songs will soon be silenced. Because Christ has been raised, the dust is no longer the eternal resting place for the people of God. 
And that message of do not be afraid right now all over our world is echoing off the walls of our churches and in the ears and the hearts of the people of God because the same truth that the women found at the empty tomb is present right here and right now that Christ is living and raised from the dead. And so there is nothing to fear. But for far too long, we have presented Christianity as a religion of fear acquiescing and bending to every threat that the world breathes and running into the arms of any offered solution. I think about the words of King David as he is afraid for his life because of something he did, a situation he placed himself in. But he said, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? For David, that help came from the Lord. He remembered God in his time of trouble. But there's so many times that followers of Christ find ourselves in places where we're wrecked with fear and we lift our eyes up to the hills and we say, where is my help going to come from? Because honestly, I'll take it from anywhere. We forget about our creator. We forget about our savior. And we start looking for any other option to fill that void because we don't live like there is no fear. We live like the driving factor of our life is that fear. And it pushes us in all different directions, but it never pushes us towards God. Know how the Jesus that rebuked the disciples on that stormy boat must look at his church that he died for that he gave up his rights for, that he gave up for at least a moment his relationship with the Father for, the church that he took on all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our brokenness, the church that he gave victory over shame and death, how he must look at us and say, oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Because if this wasn't enough, as we saw in our reading earlier that went a little deeper into this passage, not only does the angel look at the women and say, don't be afraid, Jesus himself echoes that same word. Do not be afraid. We desperately need to remember our creator, to remember our savior to remember that it was the resurrection that took frightened men who ran off and scattered into their home like roaches when the lights come on, took those frightened men and turned them into fearless, faith-filled world changers for the sake of the gospel. And that same resurrection power that wrecked the life of Peter, that wrecked the life of James, that wrecked the life ultimately of Paul and sent them on mission without fear, ultimately costing them their lives, but being able to go into death with confidence because they knew their Redeemer lived. That same power is living and moving in the church of God here and now. And so the message of Easter is just crying out to us, do not be afraid. There is nothing to fear. When doubt comes, don't be afraid because Christ died and Christ rose again not as an ideology or a belief system, but as a historical reality to put his mark on all of eternity so that we can look back and say, this really did happen. When fear comes, don't be afraid. 
Because Christ has taken away the power of the oppressor because there's nothing this world can do to us that could take away our relationship with Christ. There's nothing that the world can do to us to take away our inheritance that Jesus gave us through his death and his resurrection. When sickness comes, when physical disabilities come, don't be afraid because Christ has given you a promise that one day you will be redeemed and restored just like Jesus' body was broken and died and raised again. We have that promise as well. When we face our last breath on this side of eternity, we can do so without fear because Christ has been raised. And Paul says that if we taste a death like his, that he is sure that we will experience a resurrection like his as well. And following up on that, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So don't be afraid. Christ is risen. And if you've placed your faith in him, you are as well. So there is nothing to fear. At the end of Ecclesiastes, the very end, after the teacher speaks his last words, the narrator comes back in. The writer comes back in. In the last several verses, starting in verse 9, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed or collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Verse 13 there is so profound in what we're seeing. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And there's an interesting sense of finality there. Even just the idea of don't write more books. All that's been said as possibly could be said. But then Jesus speaks a new word. Jesus speaks a better word. A word of eternity. For the writer of Ecclesiastes, he says, fear God and keep his commandments because that's pretty much all you can do. That's the best that we have. And then Jesus takes that and opens that up saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The writer of Ecclesiastes looked at this and said, this is as good as the world could possibly get, so we might as well make the best of it. But Jesus comes in and he says, no, behold, I am making all things new. And it began on that first Easter Sunday, the first day of new creation as Jesus walked out of that tomb. And now he gives us that same resurrected life. And for us to fear God and to keep his commandments, it means that we walk in the truth of that resurrected life. That we live the life that Christ died to give us, the victory that Jesus claimed on our behalf. And we go out and we use our lives to say, no, there is nothing meaningless in this world because Christ has been raised. There is nothing vanity about this life because Christ has been raised. And look at my life to see it. 
I'm willing to give it all away because Christ has given me a better purpose. I'm willing to take my life and like Paul said, pour it out like a drink offering. Give every single drop of it knowing that every breath I take, every word I speak, every action I live has meaning because Christ has redeemed me from the inside out. And so in the things that we do, in the things that we say, in the way that we live, when we fear God and keep his commandments, we are proclaiming the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. We're telling the world around us that death isn't the end of the story. We are proclaiming to anyone who will see it or hear it that I am not afraid. Because the Jesus that the women sought, expecting to find him dead and buried, has been raised. So the message of Easter is don't be afraid because there's nothing to fear. Trust in God keep his commandments, follow in the steps of your Savior, remember him when the days are good and when the days are hard, live a life that reflects that victory that we have in Christ Jesus. And as we do, we'll see God continue to shape our lives, to take our fear and replace it with faith, to take our uncertainty and replace it with confidence, to give us the ability to walk in the steps that Jesus has laid out for us before the foundations of the world. And as he does that in each and every one of our lives, he'll start to do that in the life of our church, in the life of all of our churches. And as God's people continue to live the fearless, resurrection-driven life, proclaiming the gospel in word and deed, we will see just like in the book of Acts. God continue to shake the foundations of our world and turn it upside down with the hope of the gospel. He has risen as more than just a mantra for Easter Sunday, but the driving force in the life of a Christian. And it gives us the permission to live without fear, to boldly come into the presence of God and then boldly go out into the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And so as Easter Sunday comes and goes, the message remains the same. Let's be a people of Easter each and every day of our lives, trusting in God, keeping his commandments, living without fear, and praying that through our work, our life, and our actions, that God will continue to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven as men and women and children come to faith in Jesus because of the fearless, bold work of his church.